For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? If you have a Bible with you, you can turn it to the book of Galatians. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, it's printed in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there's uh, about five of them on the back table. We'd love to give one of those to you. That is our gift to you. Welcome you to this time. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Rick. I'm the pastor here. Um, we have roughly eight weeks left in uh, this series in Galatians. And like so many of Paul's letters, <clears throat> this one began dealing with what is true of us if we are Christians, right? Like if you are a Christian here this morning, he spends time through anecdote and personal story and confrontation even, to talk about this is what is true of us as Christians. Paul said that we are made right with God through faith alone, in Christ alone, not through rule keeping, not through morality, not through seeking our satisfaction elsewhere, but not even through religion, but through faith alone in Jesus alone. But if we all believed that, and I mean really believed that, if we all believed that 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 were true, what kind of community would it create? That, see, that's what the last part of this letter is about. What kind of group of people would that form us into? If we all believed that there was nothing that commended us to God, that I'm no better than you are, you're no better than I am, that no matter what our lives look like, whether that's a, a train wreck or it looks real pretty, that we're all in need of rescue from our sin, but that God lovingly and willingly did that in Jesus. If we all believe that through faith in Jesus we have a right status before God, but also that our deepest satisfactions are met in relationship with Him. How would that form us as a community? And so Paul said, uh, you know, several weeks ago we saw that Paul said that if this is true of you, you will change. Change will happen. That you will turn away from what he calls the works of the flesh, and that the Spirit of God will begin to produce fruit in our lives that looks like Him. And now he begins to work out how we are going to relate to one another in the world. How are we then going to relate to each other as people and then to the world as a community towards it? The first of these, as he begins to work these out, will be that we will be those who seek to restore. So if you have your place, we're in Galatians 6. Our habit here is to stand in honor of God's word. We're just reading one verse this morning. Just one verse. This is God's word to us. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. But keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. This is God's word for us, friends, given so that we would flourish. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, you know where we're all at. We pray that you would meet us where we are. Whether we're coming into this room with great joy or with trial, with questions and skepticisms, or confidence and faith. We pray that you would meet us where we are, that you would preach your gospel to us, because my words don't matter, Lord, only yours. 
And so, Jesus, as we lift you up, we pray that you would draw all of us to yourself as you promised to do. Specifically, Lord, you know where my voice is at right now. I just pray that you would uh, help me to be an effective communicator uh, and that we would all hear and receive. For the sake of your great name, we ask it. Amen. Have a seat. All right, so let's be honest from the start. The church has kind of a bad rap when it comes to doing community. So if you were to ask your unchurched or de-churched friends, and by that we mean those who have never been to church or those who no longer go to church, right? If you were to ask your unchurched or de-churched friends uh, or neighbor about their experience or their inclination towards church, which, frankly, you should do, by the way, especially if you were raised in the church, it's a really good alternate perspective for you because your perspective is probably just... This is just what you do, and isn't it great, and da 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 and hearing another perspective would probably be really helpful. Uh, but if you were to ask them what their experience or leaning towards the church is, more than likely you would hear words like hypocritical, judgmental, party killer. Now, some of this is unjust, but much of it isn't, right? Because you see, in churches there is often the spoken message, and that's what I'm doing, Right? That's, what, that's what you've heard from, from our team, and that's what you've heard from our prayers. There's the spoken message, and then there's the unspoken one. In the spoken message, we can say clearly, like, we believe that there's no difference between you and me, that we are all justified by faith alone in Christ alone. But then, how does the unspoken message work when we violate our community norms? That morality that we're all supposed to keep. We dress the wrong way. We... We drink the wrong things. We watch the wrong shows. See, it's really clear with the unspoken message, it it can become very easy to see that, well, yeah, God loves us, all of us equally, but some of us are more equal than others. That God thinks we're all great, but He actually thinks I'm better than you. I mean, obviously, look at what you're wearing. And so what this does in a community is it creates a group of people who simply hide from each other because the unspoken message is that God loves us because of what we do. And since you don't do that, he doesn't love you. And so we pretend. But our verse today assumes something very different. It assumes conflict, but assumes it for the sake of restoration, not for the sake of being right. This text and the ones that are coming later, Jason will be preaching on the one next week, But these assume that we care enough about others that we're actually in their lives, that we're open before others. They're in our lives and that we actually believe that it's Jesus that makes us right before God and not someone's opinion of us, but it is Jesus. It assumes that we dare to be honest, that we are broken, but that we also dare to love others enough to seek to see that brokenness made right. So as we come to this text this morning, there's an outline in your bulletin. If that's helpful, if not, just leave it there. But we're going to look at this one verse in four ways. Okay? Don't panic. All right. Four, four points this morning. We're going to look at a situation. We're going to look at a direction. We're going to look at a qualification and then a caution. Okay? A situation, a direction, a qualification, and a caution. And you can follow along. We'll, we'll have it up here as well. Okay? So... <clears throat> I know what most of you are thinking, four points on one verse. Don't be afraid, it's going to go faster than you think. All right, let's start with the situation. Look at the first part of the verse. Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression. All right, now stop there. I want to point out how generally specific Paul is being, or specifically general. 
Maybe that's probably a better way of putting it. See, Paul uses some language in here that's very poignant. First, he has the word that we translate as anyone. Um, in the original, that simply means human. Now, why, why that matters? Because he's not saying any one of us, right? He's not just talking about us as a group. He's saying anyone. Which, does it include us? Yes, it does. Includes any one of us. But it can also mean more than that. It goes beyond us. It is a generalization that can be applied both within the church and outside. Second, he says if anyone is caught in any transgression. Now, transgression is not a word that we use often. Thank you. Um, unless you're in the church. Right? So, what, what does that mean? And often in the church we miss it. So, basically, it's this. It's really simple. It's, it's a synonym for the word sin. Now, I know that's not a popular word, and we're going to get to that in a second, but what he's talking about is anyone caught in any sin. Now, it's the modifier that's the most important, right? Any. In other words, Paul is not laying out for us a graded scale. If you're caught in this, you're in trouble. If you're caught in this, eh, who cares? It, you know, if you do this, the, the hammer is falling. If you do this, well, we're all human. Not a big deal. The situation is someone who finds themselves committing what the Bible would call sin. Any sin. And this means that what he is saying is applicable to those we know in here and those we know out there. Okay? Now, this gets to some assumptions, all dealing with this notion of sin. So let me deal with those. The first is that sin is real. See, Christians believe, and and frankly... um, If you consider yourself a Christian and don't believe this, I'd love to talk to you because I'd love to know how that works. But Christians believe that sin is something real. It is at its most basic seeking independence from God. I want to do things my way, in my power, for my glory. Now, for some of us, it looks like what we call immorality, right? That's That's the notorious people. Some of us are those. Most of us probably not. That's the, I want to do things my way. Others of us, though, it doesn't look like immorality. It looks very like very responsible, very moral living in which we say, I want to do things in my power for my glory. This is for me. I don't need you. We need to understand, those are the same before God. Sin is real. So sin is real, but the second assumption is that sin is serious. And this is the big one that we struggle with in our culture because we see that idea of sin, the idea of breaking uh, some God's law as being culturally driven, right? So it's like a taste. It's a preference. It's, it's like, um, you know, we, we go, well, in this culture this is wrong, but in this culture it's not. So who's to say? Like, sin is a, is a preference issue. And, and because of this, we struggle to think it's serious because really, who cares whether or not you like Beyonce or Rihanna? Don't you just like music? Like, it, isn't it all the same at the end of the day? Which, no, it's not. Okay? Beyonce is way different than Rihanna. Just saying. Okay. The Bible, though, says that sin is serious. Sin is deadly serious. Deadly serious. And this, we need to understand very clearly. Sin isn't just breaking a rule. It's breaking a relationship. It's breaking a relationship with God. And it harms. I know we have a hard time seeing that. It harms the community. It harms us. It harms the world. It harms everything. And the Bible's very clear on that, no matter how hard it is for us to see. But it's not only harmful, it's also punishable. 
right? Because it's breaking relationship with God. It's betraying God. Betrayals bring guilt. We know that. You've betrayed people. You've been betrayed. Betrayals bring guilt. And so seeing others in sin, even if it is, even that sin is against us, is not a neutral event. We're not watching something that then we kind of go, uh, who cares? Not a real big deal. Like, it is, it is watching someone walk a path of death. If they're Christians, it's walking a path that ultimately, uh, in which they harm themselves and others and fight against their relationship with God. If they aren't Christians... We watch all of that, plus the fact that they will have to answer for it. They will have to bear it. Sin is real, it is serious, and lastly, it is universal. That's where the whole anyone comes into play. See, a lot of people today think that Christians believe that they, they aren't sinners, they don't sin. Uh, and maybe, maybe you're here this morning and you think that's true of you. But the Bible is very clear that sin is universal, that all of us, that all of us are broken and in need of rescue. That is all of us, by nature, not by nurture, but by nature, that we are all in that state. We are sinners, and that there is nothing wrong with you that isn't wrong with me. And so the generality of anyone means that Paul is seeing this as a, as a them and an us issue. This is about us, and this is about them. Okay? You with me? All right, that's the situation. Now let's look at a direction. Paul says, you who are spiritual... Now, in saying, just laying out that, we need to be very clear because there are two very uh, diametrically opposed visions of what that word spiritual means. The first <coughs> is this idea promoted by many of us, maybe some of us in this room, who self-identify as, we're not very religious, but we are spiritual. We're not religious people, but we are spiritual. And often what we mean by that is we have some general sense of the transcendent, some view that the world is more than just material, that, that there's something more, whether it's ghosts or karma or something, okay? We're spiritual people. At the same time, though, there's the other option. Because that's, generally, those are folks who wouldn't uh, identify themselves with any religion. But then if you're Christians, you see the word spiritual and you automatically think super Christian, right? The spiritual as opposed to the rest of us. And so you think to yourself, of maybe your small group leader, or, or your, your youth leader growing up, or, or um, maybe some college ministry leader who, who led you to Jesus, and, and, and you think, like, those are the really spiritual people. But neither of these is what the Bible means. Spiritual in the Bible relates to God's spirit, not to a classification. It isn't generic religion, nor is it a generic belief in God. That doesn't make you spiritual, at least not according to the Bible. Spiritual means being of the Spirit of God. Because you see, the Bible teaches that though we are sinners, when we stop trying to make ourselves right before God, we stop trying to earn our status before Him, and stop trying to seek our satisfaction in anywhere else, but instead turn to Jesus, trust His life to be our perfect record, His death to deal with our failures and sin, that the Spirit of God, the very third person of the divine trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God comes to dwell in us, to live in us. We become led, empowered, and gifted by God's Spirit. So Paul says, you, when he says, you who are spiritual, he means Christian. He doesn't mean super Christian. Because listen to me, the New Testament does not make a distinction between levels of Christians. Paul has an, a couple of letters in which he deals with this, both letters to the Corinthians. He deals with this explicitly. 
Stop thinking that you're on a different plane than everybody else. Now, you can't get, what he means by that is you can't get any more of the Spirit to make you more spiritual. Now, does that mean that the Spirit can't have any more of you? No, the Spirit can have more of you. And what that will result in is you being conformed more to the image of Jesus, you looking to, to glorify Him more, and, and, and moving out into the world to see it flourish. Like, that's what it would mean. You're certainly going to have more joy, but that is not what Paul means here. And this matters because if you are a Christian here this morning, the direction that he is about to give is for you. You can't pawn this off on anybody and go, well, this is, this is for the, the uber Christian. This is for my spiritual friends over there, and I, I'm just, I'm just the, the lowly over here. I set up chairs, you know, whatever. Like, no, if you're a Christian, this is for you. Paul says, if you are a Christian and you see someone, anyone caught in a sin, caught in a behavior or attitude that will destroy them, you are to do something about it. No outs. This is for you. And so what you are to do is to restore. Keep looking there in verse 1. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him. Okay? Now, what does that mean? Here it is. That word restore has, gives the meaning uh, or uh, the nuance of, of binding something, of um, setting something, correcting its relationship, putting it in right relationship with the whole. Here's, here's why he uses that word in particular. Because the Bible tells us that sin divides. It divides everything it touches. It divides our relationship with God, separates us from him. It divides our relationship with each other. You know this, Right? You're in relationship with people. It divides it. It even divides ourselves. That's what the Bible talks about and talks about death. It is the unnatural separation of body and spirit. It divides everything it touches. And so to restore will mean to take what sin has done and to undo it. It means in particular here to confront. Now, that isn't popular nor comfortable. So let me make sure we all get what I'm saying. What will it mean to restore someone caught in a sin? First and foremost, it will mean preaching or proclaiming, or saying the gospel. Now, that, if that's language unfamiliar to you, that is shorthand for the central message of Christianity. The gospel is simply this, that we are sinners in need of reconciliation with God and each other, but that Jesus has come to do just that, to live perfectly, to die sacrificially, and to rise victoriously in our place so that we can be right before God and live a life no longer dominated by sin. So we preach the gospel, which means when we see someone, whether they're sinning against us or we're watching it in someone else's life, we preach the gospel. We call sin, sin. We call offense, offense. When something hurts us, we say it hurts us. And we lay out the need for Jesus and the offer of reconciliation, both with God and with us through repentance and faith. In other words, you see someone in sin, you don't just laugh it off or think, you know, sucks to be them. Or because they hurt you, you just let them continue doing it and just kind of go, eh, who cares? You confront them on it. You point them to Jesus. But we don't just preach the gospel. We then practice it. We practice it. What does it mean to restore something? It means to bring it into right relationship with the whole. And you are part of that. We practice the gospel. This means if someone repents, we receive them fully. And stop pretending that our sin isn't as bad as theirs. Well, yeah, I struggle with stuff, but I do that. Stop it. Okay? Their sin is not so much worse than yours. 
What's more, you don't hold a grudge or stick with the cold shoulder or, or kind of merrily watch them squirm. That is not the gospel. God did not do that with us. We do not do that with others. We call things what they are. We hold out the promise of reconciliation in Jesus. And then if they turn and follow him, we celebrate. And if you skip any of these, you have neither the gospel nor, nor restoration. Here's what I mean. You cannot have restoration without confrontation. That is avoidance. You cannot have restoration without celebration. That is moralism that says, you have to make it up to me. You have to prove yourself to me and be good like me, and then we can have relationship. And you cannot have restoration without repentance. I cannot stress that enough. So many of us want that, right? Someone wounds us, someone sins against us, and we go, I'm just going to get over it. You cannot have restoration without repentance, both grief for and turning from that sin. Restoration without repentance is simply denial. But with the gospel, all of those things are possible. Okay? So that is the situation and the direction. Now let's see the qualification. Did you notice it? Paul gives a qualification. He says, uh, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, two things I want to say about that. The first is that gentleness does not mean passivity. I don't know where we got this notion that gentle in the Bible or meek in the Bible means this passive disconnectedness from life. Last I checked, Jesus is described as gentle, right? And that dude got in people's faces when they were doing stuff that was heinous. Like, he, he did not hesitate. He was not passive. Gentleness, though, doesn't mean passivity. It means humility. We talked about it a few weeks ago. That word, gentleness, is the same word that's used a, a few verses earlier. We'll get to it in a second. But it, it means humility. It means, it, it means ultimately thinking that you are not above a person. And so in terms of seeking your non-Christian friends and neighbors to come to know Jesus, it means knowing that, uh, that they are no further from God than you were when Jesus found you. It means knowing that they are, that it means understanding that apart from the Spirit's work in your life, you would be in the exact same position they are. Not because you're so great, because Jesus is great. In confronting other Christians, it means knowing that you are prone to the exact same kinds of issues that you are confronting them on. Nothing different about you. Secondly, though, it would be hard to hear if you've been here for the last, uh, we'll say, uh, four weeks, okay? It would be hard to hear spirit of gentleness without thinking about the fruit of the spirit that's found in the next verse, or in, the, in, the, in ch- the end of chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. Go ahead and hit that for me, Brandon. Right? Fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Spirit and gentleness, right in that same, right in this, this, this is literally like a breath later he's saying this. And here's what I said about that. I'm sure you don't remember. Okay, so here's what I said about that. These fruit, this is not a list. You don't play pixie choosies with this. This is the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. And so these go together. Christian growth is symmetrical, right? Which means that you can't have gentleness without self-control. You can't have faithfulness without patience. Which means that when he says a spirit of gentleness, he's pulling all of these different things together with it. That if you're confronting someone in a spirit of gentleness, it is also in love and joy and peace and faithfulness. 
That qualification matters because it makes this a matter of the heart for us. Here's what I mean. You all, you all know this guy, right? You know the guy. He's that guy. He's the guy who, who constantly calls other people on their stuff. He gets in their face, he calls them on their stuff, and he just, he, he always points out where we're inconsistent. Maybe you are that guy, right? And, and more than likely, he does it, or she, because they just like to be right, or worse. Because they hope that if they keep pointing the finger at other people, no one will ever point it back at them. They do it to deflect. You don't want to be that dude. And I don't want you to be that dude. All right? And so this is what, this is what Paul is talking about. Right? Thus the qualification. This is a matter of the heart. Listen, here it is. If you're with someone you care about, and in front of them is a pill... And that pill, you know and they know, will for a time take away their pain. It will alleviate their fear. It will, uh, for, for a, a moment, it will help them feel strong instead of weak. That's that pill sitting right in front of them. And you know it will do those things, but you also know that it will undoubtedly, without question, give them untreatable cancer. What will you do as they reach for it? You're going to stop them. But at the same time, you know why they're reaching for it. Because you have pain. You have fear. You feel weak. And you want those things alleviated too. There's nothing different about it. You feel that. And you understand, I know why you'd reach for that. But this will kill you. You love them, and you want their flourishing and not their destruction. Maybe you see the parallel. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're like, Rick, listen, come on. This isn't that serious. We're not talking about death. We're talking about gossip, sexuality, or, or you know, fudging a little on your taxes. Like, really? This isn't that serious. We're not talking about death, aren't we? Aren't we? Listen, if we're to believe the Bible... Sin destroys, maybe slowly, but undoubtedly it does. And so letting someone go into those areas without saying something isn't loving. I know in our culture we teach that loving means letting live. But if someone's running for a cliff without any chance of stopping, it isn't loving to let them run. Maybe I'm exaggerating, right? Maybe so is Jesus in Matthew 18, verse 8, when he said that if something is causing you to sin, you need to act radically enough to remove it. Because if you don't, you will have it in hell with you. This is serious. So let's conclude with a caution. Paul finishes with this. Watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. All right, what does this mean? Basically, Paul is saying, watch out when you do this because you are at risk too. Now, why? Listen, confronting others, uh, confronting others, seeking to see others restored is dangerous business. And here's why. When we talk about being tempted, what what are the kinds of things that Paul's tempted about? Well, number one, or saying that we're going to be tempted by. Number one, uh, the number one thing that we can be tempted with when we move to do this is self-righteousness, right? That view that I've got it together And you've got to clean it up. And in fact, if you could just be like me, we'd all be fine. Right? Self-righteousness. 
Jesus had a few things to say about self-righteousness. None of them were positive. None. Right? So the first thing we can be tempted at is self-righteousness because it is easy to believe that we are better than others when we aren't currently struggling with what we are confronting. Listen to me. Your self-righteousness is as heinous to God as anything you would confront someone else on. Maybe more so. Secondly, we can actually be tempted with the exact thing we are confronting someone else on. That's the deviousness of our own sinful proclivities. The deviousness of the enemy who hates us, who's real. But lastly, though, we can be tempted with something completely different. A God complex. That idea that we can actually be the one to change others. If I, if I can move in and if I can confront them, they'll listen to me and everything will change. Everything will go better for them. Why? Because I am the one who changes people. <sighs> Friends, that is sin. Let me just say it straight up. That is sin. You confront, you share the gospel, and then you leave the change up to God. God brings change and not us. Okay? Now, I want to conclude this morning by doing something that I, frankly, I've, I've been preaching for a while now. I don't remember ever doing that before, doing this before, but I need to do it. It's naming something that is going on right now in our church. Oh, that's fun. All right, let's all perk up for that one. Uh, listen, I love you guys, but this is real. The opposite of what Paul is talking about here can take a few forms. Let me name some of them. The first is avoidance. That's where we put our blinders up and we, we, we see someone doing something. We see someone going in a certain direction, but we, we don't want to see it. And so we go, I don't, I don't have to see it. I'll just pretend it's not there or pretend they're not there and we'll just move on. Right? The second is indifference towards that person. Where we don't avoid, we simply don't care. I don't really care what you do. You know it's going to lead them into a ditch. You know they're going to end up destroyed by it. You're like, eh, I mean, come on. It's their life. They've got to learn. So there's avoidance. There's indifference. But the third is triangulation. This is where we talk about others or talk to others about that person. They've sinned against us. And so we talk to everyone about how they've sinned against us. Uh, we, we find an advocate who's strong, who will, who will defend us. Or, or better, we, we find a coalition of other people who have likely been wronged by them as well. And we go to them and we, we build a coalition so we feel safe and good. They understand us. Let me be very clear. That is sin. It divides. It hurts the church. It grieves the heart of God. And it is happening here. So let me say this. If you are a Christian and you have been sinned against, you are to confront the person in a spirit of gentleness. Not talk to others about, about it at all. If you are... We, we are... You know, James read the passage for us. It's out of the lips of Jesus himself. Our options are we go to the person or we bear it. If you are someone who is here this morning who tends to be that advocate, you are the person others run to to complain about how someone has hurt them, and you continue to listen to them without directing them to this kind of practice, 
I love you. You are sinning. Now, does that mean we never, ever listen to the hurts of others? Of course it doesn't mean that. But we help them believe the gospel and confront others. Is it scary? Yes! Lord, it's scary to take and, and tell someone that they've hurt you. Because you don't know how they're going to respond. Are they going to scorn you? Are they going to make you feel stupid? But the gospel frees us from the fear of people. Listen to me. You have been received by the living God. The God who you have offended far more than anyone has ever offended you. You have been received by them, loved by him. And so ultimately, you don't need that person to apologize or repent for you to be right, but for them to be in the right. In Jesus, you are already in the right. And so we go to others because Jesus came to us. We seek to see them restored because Jesus sought us and restored us to himself. In other words, we show Jesus to others so that they might encounter him again, know him more. And then go and show him. I love you guys. Let me pray. Father, this, uh, we are to be shaped like this. A community that seeks to be restored to one another and to our God. But it is hard, Lord, because we struggle to believe the gospel. That it's true and it's enough. We struggle. And I know my friends in this place struggle. I struggle. Are you enough? So, Lord, I pray that you would work the truth of the gospel into our hearts even more today. That you would make us a group of people who seek to be restored to one another. Not seek to be right in front of one another, but restored. That love each other enough to open our lives and to, to, to walk into the lives of others. Who love each other enough to say, don't take the pill. And in that kind of restoration, would you let the beauty of of the gospel and the glory of Jesus shine so brightly that the world takes notice of a group of people who in gentleness and love confront and seek to be restored to one another through the gospel. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.